All right, if you got your Bibles, we're in Genesis chapter 19, where we've been studying this amazing, amazing piece of ancient literature, and we've been understanding how relevant it is to modern times. And that is certainly the case with our text today, but I want to forewarn you, it's a difficult one. It's one that contains a topic that doesn't land well with people. It's the story of two infamous cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. I was asked earlier if I was going to be teaching through this chapter or if I was going to be summarizing it. And I said, not only am I going to be teaching it, but we're going to spend two weeks here. <laughs> we're going to spend two weeks on this. It's a story of judgment. It's a story of God's judgment. Now, as I said, I realize that this topic doesn't land well with many modern people today. And I understand that because for a while I was one of those people. But I want you to know that I have changed significantly, and here's why. It occurred to me that I, I don't want to have anything to do with a God who turns a blind eye, who ignores all of the wrongs, all of the injustices, all of the evil, the wickedness that we see around us. I don't want to have anything to do with a God that ignores human suffering. I don't have anything to do with a God that doesn't hold people accountable for the wrongs that they've committed. That is, is not a God of justice. And see, what happens is a lot of times, and again, in our modern context, is that people overemphasize one of God's attributes to the exclusion of another. And so you have people even writing popular books focusing on God's love. But what I would argue is that God cannot be loving without bringing justice. So God is both loving and he's just. Now the challenge is, is for us to admit, to us to realize, I guess, first, and then to admit that we're all in our own ways a part of the problem. In our own ways, we all contribute to the downfall of culture and society because we all have this overwhelming tendency to want to serve ourselves. And what happens is that causes us pain and it causes the people around us pain. So when we say that we don't want God turning a blind eye to all the wrongs that are done, what that means is he has to look at us. So this brings us to Genesis chapter 19. Now, let's remember what happened just a chapter earlier. Abraham, this man is called by God, enters into a very special relationship with him. God makes some very specific promises. We talked about how some of those promises have already come true. We've seen them come true. He's going to bless them, make his name great, make him a father of a great nation. All of that we've seen uh, come to pass. Then God shows up with two angels, three visitors approach Abraham's tent. God reiterates the promises again, tells him a year from now his wife is going to give birth, which is a total miracle because his wife is 90 years old. And then God and these two angels depart. They all take on human form. But as they're about to leave, there's this really interesting conversation between Abraham and God. And really what's happening is Abraham is seeking to understand who God is because he's asking him questions like, well, you're headed toward the city of Sodom. We all know about the city of Sodom. It's a wicked place. But what if there's just a few righteous people there? Certainly you wouldn't destroy the righteous with the wicked. You wouldn't sweep everybody up because that doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right. And God says, well, that's true. If there's just a few righteous there, then I'll spare the city. As it turns out, there's no one righteous. And you're going to see that in a very vivid way in our text this morning. There's not one righteous person in the city except for Lot. And this guy is highly questionable. 
<laughs> He's highly questionable. That's why we're going to spend two weeks on the righteous slash nefarious actions of this man. Super interesting character, but he's there for us to learn from. So there's this conversation. Abraham is understanding who God is. The two angels that are with God now begin to set their face toward the city of Sodom, and they head out. Verse 1, chapter 19, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. And he said, my lords, please, please, turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go, leave, leave this city. They said, no, we will spend the night in the center of the action, in the town square. But Lot pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast. And he baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So here's the question to begin with. How in the world does this guy Lot end up at the city gate of Sodom? Well, earlier we read that he and his uncle Abraham, they had so much stuff, so much livestock, that the two of them could not coexist off the same land. So Abraham graciously says to Lot, you select the land that you want and I'll take the rest. And what we learn is that Lot surveys and chooses the best for himself. This tells you a little bit about what's going on in his heart. He chooses the best land for himself, but also what's in that land is the city of Sodom. And so at that point, the text tells us that he set up his tent next to the city. Now what we learn is that he is the words are, are chosen for, uh, specifically for a reason. It says that he is in the city gate. What do you mean he's in the city gate? How are you in a gate? Well, historians and archaeologists tell us that back in the day, attached to the gate of the city was a stone room. And these stone rooms were places where men of influence sat. And they kept watch on who entered and exited the city. So what we learn from this is that not only is Lot residing in the city, but he's a man of influence in this city. You don't get to have that position. It's sort of like being an elected official without being, uh, you know, it's, it's like he's, he's, a well, he's well known. Lot is like, he's like the man in the city of Sodom. He's got a place of prominence. These two men approach, we know them to be angels, and immediately Lot recognizes their visitors, and he runs out, he bows down, a sign of great respect, and he says, you guys need to stay at my place. And they say, no, 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 we're, we're going to go in the town, town center. And, and Lot realizes, oh, the town center, that's like, you know, I know the city is going to be very bad for you if you go into the center of the action. You need to stay with me. So they relent, and they stay with Lot, and Lot rolls out the red carpet for them. Now, the men of the city have been informed that there are visitors. And what happens next is, uh, is pretty dark. Verse 4, but before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people, to the last man, they surround Lot's house, and they call to Lot, where are the men that came to you tonight? 
Bring them out to us so that we may know them. So now we're getting some insights into why the city has become infamous, right? Picture the scene. There's a mob containing every man in the city, both young and old. They tell Lot to bring his visitors out so they may know him, which is another way of saying they want to sexually violate them. So this is where we, we get actually, in our English language, the idea of Sodom. Sodomy. Sodomite. Someone who lived in the city of Sodom who practiced this kind of violence. Now, what's interesting about this city is that this isn't the only reason why uh, it was judged. As it turns out, we mentioned this last week, the prophet Ezekiel, he doesn't mention any uh, sexual impropriety in the city when he speaks about it. He, he condemns them for their arrogance, their pride, and their total disregard for human life because they neglected the poor. Isn't that interesting? But he doesn't make any, any mention of their, of their sexuality. But here in this text... It is sexual sin that is actually highlighted. I mentioned this several weeks ago. The reality is nowhere in the Bible will you find even one verse that is neutral regarding homosexuality. You won't even find one verse that's even neutral on homosexuality. Now, having said that, let me be quick to say this. You and I, every person in this room, has done things to put Jesus on the cross. You follow what I'm saying? Every person in this room has done something to put Jesus on the cross. You can't say that Lot was surprised by what's happening because remarkably, there are things revealed about him that we later learn in the New Testament. We know this because of what we read in 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he, God, condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued, look at this, righteous Lot. That, now, that's really interesting because in this text right here, Peter says that Lot was righteous, and you're kind of scratching your head going, what is he, really? Keep reading. And if he rescued righteous Lot, how was Lot righteous? Well, he was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man, that's the second time he's called righteous, righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Okay? If the Lord knows how to save a man, a righteous man like Lot, from back in the day, then when God brings judgment again to the world, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So this is interesting. So Lot's righteous because he sees the wickedness of his city and it bothers him. In fact, the text says that, like, you know, he's like, he's tormented over it. And yet, he's part of the city. You know, it's kind of like, well, what, what's going on here? Well, Lot, it turns out, is not a great decision maker. 
we've seen a little bit of what's in his heart when he surveys the land and chooses the best for himself when his uncle was gracious enough to save him previously, kind of takes advantage of Abraham again, chooses the best for himself, sets his tent outside the city, but then he's kind of like, you know what, I think I want to be in that city. And then he sees what's going on around him and he's tormented by it. It's kind of like um, he's a conflicted soul. He's both drawn and repelled by the city in which he lives. We know that he likes nice things, he likes comforts, he looks out for himself, but then he sees the really hedonistic lifestyle and he's appalled by it. I think this is true of some Christians today. In other words, they've kind of got one foot in this camp, let's call it maybe the camp of culture or the worldly camp, but then they've got another foot in this other camp. It's like the spiritual camp. And they're, they're tormented, you know, it's kind of like they like some things in this world, but then there are other things where like, I would never do that, that's gross. But this I kind of like. And could it be this is the reason why sometimes there's no difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? Because they absorb essentially the same content. Maybe they absorb the same video, the same media. They speak the same language. And there's no recognizable difference because they they don't have a firm grasp of what it means to really leave behind what holds them back, not fully realizing that they're being held back because there's a pleasure principle inside them that they're giving into that the world is feeding. And so it's one foot in one camp, one foot in another camp, and they're really torn. And this is the reason why I think in part many Christians experience a spiritual apathy because they haven't freed. It's like, it's like, there's, it's like they have this bear trap around one foot and they, can't, they just can't release themselves from it. And so this, this ends up affecting uh, who you are. It affects Lot's decision-making because what happens next is unthinkable in his life. Verse 6, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, and he shut the door after him. And he said, I beg you, my brothers, don't act so wickedly. Then he says, behold, I have two daughters. They've not known any man. They're virgins. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. So this is messed up. Let's call it what it is, right? This is a colossal and monumental forfeiture and failure of Lot's fatherly responsibilities toward his children, specifically his daughters. It's totally unjustifiable. And the responsibility lays on him alone. Some say that Lot made this offer knowing that it would be rejected because the men wanted to be with uh, the men in his house. Regardless, it's it's a monstrous offer on the part of Lot. But when you're in those situations where you're being pressed in, And if you don't have a firm understanding of who God is and who you are in God, you tend to make bad decisions. So this is the outworking of Lot, sort of having half a divided soul. In any case, Lot's foolishness was overridden by the anger of the mob. 
Verse nine, but they said, stand back. Like, get out of our way. This fellow, Lot, he came to us as a sojourner, meaning he was only supposed to take up temporary residence here, and now he's telling us what to do. We're gonna deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot, and they drew near to break the door down. So this offer backfires on Lot. They don't wanna be told right from wrong, certainly from a newbie in town, and they judge Lot for being judgmental. That's interesting, isn't it? They judge Lot for being judgmental. We see this in our own society today. You are dismissed simply because you withhold approval. Absence of approval in our culture makes you unforgivably judgmental. Let me say that again. Absence of approval in our culture makes you unforgivably judgmental. In reality, there's a difference between acceptance and approval. Jesus is the ultimate example because what do you see him do? You see him accept everybody. He hung out with like the worst of the worst. They accused him of it. He hangs out with tax collectors. Those guys are just, ah, they're disgusting. They're filthy. They're always ripping people off. He hangs out with prostitutes. Jesus accepted everybody, but he didn't approve of everything everybody did. Why? Because not everything we do is good for us. The most loving thing you can do is to speak truth into someone's life in a gracious way. And this is what Jesus did time and time again. To the woman at the well, he says, let's talk about your life. You're with all these different men. The men that you're with, the man that you're with now is not your husband. So Jesus was never soft on sin, but he was always gentle with the sinner. Just the fact that he is a rabbi is speaking to a Samaritan woman is unheard of. That's why the text even mentions. She says, why are you talking to me? It's like, because I care about you. You're never going to have this conversation in any of your context, right? A rabbi's never going to speak to a woman like you, but I will. I will. To the woman caught in adultery, Jesus kind of lays it out there and, 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 and reveals the, the, pulls back the curtain and exposes the people who are trying to expose her. They leave, and Jesus is like, well, it's just you and me here now. Is, um, is anybody left to condemn you? See, condemn her, meaning condemn her to death because that's what they wanted. That was the penalty for adultery. Is there anybody else here, anybody left who's going to condemn you to die for what you've done? No, there's nobody left. He says, well, I'm not going to condemn you to die for this either, but here's what you need to know. Go your way and what? Sin no more. Isn't that interesting? Jesus calls it out. He says, no, I want to be gracious and loving with you, but you need to know the most loving thing I can do for you right now is speak the truth to you. And the truth is, what you're doing is wrong. It's robbing you of your life and those around you. Go your way and sin no more. There's a difference between acceptance and approval, and that has become completely lost on our culture, and that's why people are quick to cancel anybody that doesn't strike the right tone of approval. So, I've never had an angry mob come after me. It must be terrifying. What would stop them? Well, something supernatural, verse 10. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. <laughs> so, they see what's going on. So, they end up rescuing Lot. Lot's Lot a bad decision maker. He has to be rescued by these men. They struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, house both small and great, so that they wore themselves out. They're like, you know, 
they're, they're groping for the door. So they're, they're blinded supernaturally by these angels, the men outside. And that still doesn't even cool their sexual jets. Isn't that interesting? They're groping to try to get away, to try to find a way into the house, even though they're blinded. Sexual sin, as many will attest to, is an especially difficult stronghold in a person's life. Let me say that again. Sexual sin is an especially difficult stronghold in a person's life. And the Apostle Paul explains why. As he's writing to a church that existed in the first century A.D., this church was in one of, if not the most sexually charged cities of the, of, of the world at, at that time. In fact, there was a, a word that was coined to describe sexual immorality, Corinthadzai, and it meant to act like one who lived in the city of Corinth. So there's a church in the midst of this highly charged sexual city. There's this church there. And the challenge for some of these, these people is in the Greco-Roman world of the first century, pretty much any kind of sex was, um, was acceptable. Um, pedophilia, certainly adultery, prostitution. Yeah, you, you fast forward to Nero, and he was castrating young boys and taking them into his harem. And this is the guy who's in charge, right? This is like the most powerful man in the world. So there's virtually nothing was off limits. Nothing was taboo. Now, in the midst of this highly sexualized city, you've got this, you've got this little group, these Christians, these little, Christ, little Christ, little Jesus followers. And they're absorbed. All they've ever known is a sexually charged city. And so now there's some struggle there. In fact, at one point, there's this one guy that's having an illicit relationship with his mother, stepmom, perhaps. And, and people in the church are like... Isn't this great? We are so open and so tolerant and so accepting. This is wonderful. Well, of course, that would take place in the city of Corinth. And, and Paul writes, says, there's something you don't understand. This isn't the reason why God created your body, so that you would pimp it out. And there's something about sexual sin that's a little bit different than other sins. And... Well, he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. The word is porneia, from which we get our English word porno or pornography. And here's, here's the thing about it. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. This is very insightful. So it's kind of like, well, what's the big deal with pornography? What's the big deal with a one-night stand? What's the big deal with a hookup? He tells you why. If I, if I speak a lie, I'm speaking that in the air, okay? That's different than engaging in a sexual sin with my body. So he says those sins are outside the body, but a sexual sin, you're actually facilitating that sin with your physical being. So it, it is different. And in a day when all kinds of sexual activity had been normalized for nearly everyone, this is the beginning of a sexual revolution. It's different from other sins because at its core, it's actually a form of self-harm. You're sinning against your own body. And so we might commit other sins um, with, with uh, our, our bodies, but it's this unification with another person that takes it to a, a spiritual level that is misguided, a physical level that's misguided. And Here's the thing, 
we always experience the natural consequences of this. This is why, even when people say, you know, it's, it's good to have sex before marriage so that you can figure things out and make sure everything's working and make sure that you're compatible. Well, I mean, even, you know, just secular studies alone will tell you that the divorce rate for those who cohabitate is, is actually quite a bit higher than those who do not. Um, but additionally, what happens is when you have sex before marriage, it's a smokescreen, folks, in this way. It's hard for you to really understand who that person is and to get to know them for who they are when you have sex because sex takes things to the next level and there's this joining together, there's this physical union that takes the place or transcends the spiritual union and the emotional union that is meant to be built first. And then it's really hard to detach yourself from that relationship because you've already united yourself to that person. Why? Because sexual sin is done with your body and that's what makes it different. And that's what makes its consequences different. So when two people are dating and they're engaged in sexual activity, the smoke screen goes out there and it becomes very difficult for you to see who that person really is because you've had a union before it's time. So, uh, having said that, I wanna say this. It's important to note that Paul doesn't tell us that sexual immorality is the worst of all sins as we sometimes conclude. But what, what he's combating is this carefree, casual attitude towards it that some Christians in his day were carrying in the midst of a hypersexualized culture. Now that'll preach, let me say that again. What Paul is writing about, what he's writing to, he's writing to a group of Christians that lived in a hypersexualized culture that didn't recognize it as such. They were carried along by it. And as a result, it was causing the congregation deep pain. It's no more or less a sin than any other but human cultures throughout history, including our own, tend to minimize it. So here, here's what happens next. The angels tell Lot and his family to get ready. Things are about to get gnarly in this city. It's about to be leveled, but Lot lingers a little bit. You know, he lingers. He's, staying, he's taking too long. So the angels rush him and, uh, and his, his daughters and his wife away. They run out of the city to a small city called Zoar. There's some really crazy stuff that happens. If you want to read ahead, we're going to spend an entire... Uh, sermon just on that next week because it takes Lot's actions to a whole nother level with his daughters. Um, uh, but the, town, the word Zoar literally means little or tiny, so that's how we know it's a small, small little town. And then the sun, the, verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew through those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground, total devastation. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. So the exact location of Sodom has been disputed, but a lot of historians and archaeologists put it somewhere near the Dead Sea or in the Dead Sea Valley, which I think is pretty accurate. This is a really interesting um, landscaping. Some of you have been there. It's known for its high salt content not just in the Dead Sea, but in the surrounding land. It's also known for bitumen, and it's high level of sulfur. So it's a really, really unique place, kind of godforsaken. Not a lot grows there 
Uh, and it's also known for this massive rift. It's actually called the Rift Valley. It runs for hundreds of miles. So some theorize that God might have opened up this rift, maybe through an earthquake or something like that, and, and released some of what was underground. There, there are, like I say, large bitumen and sulfur underground, um, in, in essentially like caverns almost. And we know that sulfur dust is extremely flammable. Some people say that that's maybe how God, what God used. He used the natural landscape and all of a sudden it rains down fire and brimstone. What's interesting is that archaeologists have discovered a village wherein the buildings have burned from the top down. All of the structures have burned from the top down. Usually if you're going to set fire to something, right, it burns from the bottom up. But in this village, something happened. Like maybe fire rained down and burned it from, burned the buildings from the top down. Um, whatever the case, the text tells us that this is uh, absolutely an act of God. So what's up with Lot's wife looking back and turning into a pillar of salt? I remember being a kid hearing this, and I was always fascinated by this story. It seems kind of odd. Um, she looks back, and as she looks back, she's turned to a pillar of salt. Well, it's, it's pretty interesting because in Luke chapter 17, Jesus actually talks about this, and he gives us some insight into perhaps what exactly happened. So here's the context. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God being fulfilled on earth, and when that happens, actually, it will be part of his return, right? So here's what he says, Luke 17, verse 31. On that day, let the one who was on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Then verse 32, remember Lot's wife, so this is one of the reasons why we know. See, I'm talking, sometimes I'll talk with um, some, some young adults and they'll say, I just can't believe those stories in the Old Testament are true, like the story of Sodom and Gomorrah or the story of, of Jonah. Well, here's the thing. If you believe that Jesus is who he said he was, Jesus actually refers to these Old Testament accounts as though they really happened, all right? So he says, remember Lot's wife. So here's what's interesting about this. Jesus describes Lot's wife as doing something more than just turning her head. In fact, the language here describes a literal going back. Could it be that not just turning her head as we think, but she actually decides to go back? Why? Well, on that day, let the one who was on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. See, and that's what Lot's problem was in the first place. He wouldn't leave the city immediately, right? So maybe the picture is of Lot's wife, I, 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 need to take, I need to take this. I can't leave without this. I have to have this. Oh, I need this. All right, okay, there's a few more things for me to get here. I need all this stuff. And she lingers. The text says that she's behind Lot looking back. And she gets caught up in the sulfur and the salt that's raining down. And she's caught up in the firestorm. Regardless of the exact details, here's the deal. The narrative is meant to instruct us. Remember Lot's wife, Jesus says. And then he adds this in the very next verse. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. So... Lot's wife proves to be an example. This is pretty powerful. She sought to preserve her life by clinging to the things of this world. Lot was clinging to the things of this world, and it ends up affecting his judgment. The New Testament tells us over and over again, these accounts are here for our instruction. So here it is. What are you clinging to? What is it that you're holding on to? 
Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. At this point, it's almost like <laughs> you want to just take a moment of silence for the cities. He's looking, and he sees the smoke rising. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Back in chapter 18, Abraham said, God, would you destroy the city if there's just a few righteous people? No, I won't. I won't. I'll preserve it. But here's the deal. There's nobody righteous except for Lot. And that dude is far from perfect. And in fact, Lot can't save himself. I'm going to need to do it for him. We've been saying that every week, every chapter in Genesis points forward to who? Don't be shy. Thank you. Thank you, God. They have been listening. <laughs> Every chapter in Genesis, listen, points forward to Jesus. So beautiful. Because what happens is, Jesus comes on the scene as the fulfillment of a promise to Abraham. Through you, all families on earth will be blessed. And the point is, nobody is righteous. And judgment is coming. See, when Jesus came the first time around, he came... As in the form of a child, meek, mild, tender, humility. Born in a stable, laid in a manger. That's humility. The Bible tells us he's coming again. He came once. No reputable historian doubts Jesus of Nazareth existed. He's coming again. He's not coming in the form of a baby. He's coming in the form of a king. And you know one of the responsibilities of a king? Kings were also judges. They sat in the seat of judgment. And so once again, there is none righteous, but Jesus provided a way for the justice of God to be satisfied by saying, I will take all of your wrongs upon myself, and the justice of a holy God will be placated. His anger towards it, God does get angry at wrongdoings. I'm happy about that, because you too get, when innocent people suffer, you get angry too, right? God does too. There's gonna come a final day when God deals with it once and for all. So, you can't save yourself. This is why Jesus came. He asked that question in the Garden of Gethsemane. Is there any other way? Is there any other way for people to be saved? No, because no one can save themselves. Genesis chapter 19 is actually the story of Jesus. So I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Jesus says the lesson of Sodom and Gomorrah is found in Lot's wife. In large part, it was her looking back, her desire for worldly things. Father, will you set us free from those things? I, I, there's no doubt for every heart in the room, it's, it's, it's something. Lord, for those who are caught up in sexual sin, Father, may they find freedom in you. Father, may they be motivated to reach out to the church to find help because we have that help. That help, first and foremost, is found in a right relationship with you. May they reach out to those that can come beside them and bring sexual healing and restoration in ways that feed their soul that they've never known. Pray that you would strip away any sort of pride or arrogance because it's true. 
We've all done something to put Jesus on the cross. We're thankful for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, paying the price for our sins. Father, let us learn from these ancient accounts so that we may grow in the grace, the knowledge, and the love that you have for us as demonstrated through Jesus' death on the cross. Also that the name of Jesus can be made known and famous. And God's people said, amen.